The views expressed by guests on this podcast are the opinions of the speakers and not PCCA. This podcast is intended to be educational and informative. PCCA does not endorse or advocate any practice that is not consistent with federal and state laws or regulations. Check with your local board of pharmacy about any issues in your particular jurisdiction. Welcome to the Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast where we discuss all things compounding and all things concerning pharmacy. Now, here are your hosts, Mike Delisio, North American Sales Director, and Sebastian Dennison, Clinical Compounding Pharmacist. Welcome, Compounding World, and welcome to the latest episode of A Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast. This is Mike Delisio, joined Sebastian Dennison. Hey, Seb. Hey, Mike. What's going on? Not much. You know my favorite episodes are. Uh, yep. and, and that's when we have a chance to sit down with a member. So it's a special day and someone who we know really, really well. And I'm so grateful that she took the time to be on our podcast because this is something that we obviously wanted to talk about for a while. I know you and I have chatted about it offline. You know, what are your thoughts? Because I know this is going to be definitely great information for our membership and for our listeners. Well, first off, like when you have a new emerging option uh, for many of these patients, um, clearly off-label uses of medications becomes bigger and bigger, but to have someone who is so good in so many facets and who's, who's willing to speak on uh, new options, it's just, it's, it's an amazing option for us to have her as a guest. So Pacific Northwest is proud to have her as part of uh, our community of pharmacists. So yeah, probably the best way to say it. And from the great state of Washington to what Seb just alluded to, none other than Don Ibsen. Don, welcome to the mortar and pestle. Wow. Thank you for having me. I'm feeling a little bit of a rock star moment going on over here. Like I'm just hitting the stage right now. It's funny that you use that choice of words, obviously rock star compounding being our, you know, I would say part of our branding and really focusing on the amazing compounders that we work with. You are the rock star um, and you get the opportunity to really talk more about your practice. You've been a member for a very long time and yeah. you're a pr- owner and proprietor of you know two pharmacy compounding locations. Talk to us a bit more about you know your background and you know everything that has been successful in your world because it definitely is impressive. You've been a member of our advisory council. You're a very prominent voice and face amongst PCCA membership. And it's just an honor to have you here today. Well, thank you again so much. It's always a pleasure to spend spend a little afternoon time with you both. Um, yeah, so Don Ipson, I'm a compounding pharmacist. I have a doctorate of pharmacy degree from University of Washington. And I've had the lovely career of being a compounding specialist my entire career, so a little over 20 years now. I try not to let that date me too much. Um, Along that pathway, I, along with having compounding as my career, I've switched gears a little bit and am an owner of two compounding-only pharmacies in Washington State. Um, They both do non-sterile compounding, and that's really what I'm passionate about is being that place within the community to really help touch and facilitate therapeutic outcomes in patients where no other pharmacy can do that. So we love, love, love being problem solvers, really thinking outside the box, really thinking individualized, personalized medicine. Um, Let's see. So yeah, two compounding only pharmacies. They both do non-sterile compounding and they are both compounding only. 
So that's kind of a little bit about what we do. I say what sets us apart is we are very highly in our Pacific Northwest known as the accessible pharmacy. We're very um, education-based for our providers and our patients. And we specialize in therapies for chronic conditions, in inflammation, and, and autoimmune. So that's what our jam is and our expertise. Of course, we do all the other things that a lot of compounding pharmacies do, like hormone replacement therapy, veterinary medicine, dermatology, dental, pain, and all that. But really, if you say, what is it we're super, super good at? It's working with chronic inflammatory conditions. Where did that shift occur? Obviously, compounding only, you know, my, my mind goes to the fact that obviously you cover patients across a variety of disease states. When was there an evolution towards, you know, autoimmune conditions, inflammatory response, things of that nature? And, you know, where, where did you see a, a change in where you spent a majority of your time? Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's been pre-COVID. You know, we kind of mark COVID as a sort of a timeline major anymore. But pre-COVID, we were pretty early on in working with low-dose naltrexone, which then opened a lot of doors for chronic inflammation. And, um, you know, it started out 20 years ago where it was fibromyalgia and MS, and those were kind of the conditions. And then it grew. And then we started learning more about what does this therapy do? How does it work? What's the mechanism of action? And started applying it towards most conditions that were inflammation-based and finding positive outcomes for a good percentage of patients that needed that. Um, however, you know, LDN is a great tool. It's very, very helpful. Yes, I recommend it a lot and help with dosing and, and customization, um, but it, it wasn't fixing it for everybody. And, and really, I'd say, well, if you said what's new, I would say that's where we're kind of trending is COVID evolved this need for experts in chronic inflammation very, very quickly. So we've had a huge steep learning curve in the last three years of dealing with this inflammatory viral condition. And then the outspin of that, of these patients who are continuing to have chronic inflammation, granted they don't still have the COVID virus. Um, so we start looking for more tools in our toolbox, you might say. I think that's where that's Sebastian comes in. Ideally, because uh, I, I could not no. think of a better segue into Sebastian and, you know, the topics that we've discussed. And I know Sebastian's also spoke on behalf of your pharmacies as well. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. Sebastian did an amazing Speakers Bureau event for us during COVID when we were all stuck on our computers. It was amazing. Um, great turnout there. And then coming up, we have two Speakers Bureaus that are that are programmed and set, we get to have um, Nat Jones, the, the famous Nat Jones, doing a webinar for our doctors on post-COVID syndrome. That's actually coming up in just a few weeks. And I hear we have over 100 registered for that already. And then we get to host the famous Sebastian Dennison into the Pacific Northwest. We're hosting a Provider Speakers Bureau at the gorgeous Chateau St. Michel Winery right down the road from us. So it is going to be the event of the year in so the Pacific Northwest. I'm coming. So Sebastian, um, I'll, be, <laughs> yeah. I'll be joining you now that I know that. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be great. Well, I, I actually have a couple of questions before we get into the meat of what you're, you're invited yeah. for. How do you, how do you get such engagement on your events? Like what, yeah. how do you develop those relationships? Because I know we wanted to talk about that later, but yeah. we're talking about it now, a hundred people registered for the next webinar series. Yeah. And then you're talking about an in-person event. How do you make yeah. these work so well? Yeah. 
Well, I have a marketing manager. She's amazing. And she not only is extremely collaborative and really thinks creatively, she pushes me and drives me in good, solid direction, sometimes a little out of my comfort zone even, which I love. Um, but we definitely go into these things with a very strong marketing plan on and a timeline. Um, so sort of the timeline on this, like we we were a little nervous about this um, webinar-based speakers bureau because we had a short shorter timeline than we would have preferred. Um, but we launched it at a provider um, conference that we exhibit every at every year. And when I exhibit at this conference every year, I always, always want to make sure I'm bringing two or three new things to them because they all already know me. They know who I am. A lot of them are my friends. You know, I consider them colleagues as well. So I always want to have what's new. And our what's new this year was um, we have a provider portal on our website that gives them better access to all of my references and guides for compounding. And then we had these two events and we were helping to get them registered with QR codes on site. Um, she's done several email blasts and newsletter blasts and we did fax campaign. Um, but ultimately, I think the golden secret on how you do that is I have on every computer downstairs that is on phones, a little reminder about the summary of the event and every single staff member is tasked with making sure they invite every single provider's office that calls in to this event and we can register them on the phone right then for it. And we've made it a little bit of, there's always a little contest involved. Whoever registers the most people um, gets a prize. And so it makes it kind of fun and it gets everybody engaged and the whole team is involved in this and they're doing a great job, really great job. That's fantastic because I know a lot of a lot of people they're thinking I want to host an event and how do I do it but but yeah. where do they start and you must be planning these out three to six months in advance and like you're yeah. setting these this this isn't a on the fly event it's uh, it's you've got this plan probably a three to five year plan knowing you you've got them all laid out and. <laughs> Yeah, we made it. We made it a corporate goal this year that we were going to host two provider-specific educational events, and that they would be free to our providers to attend. And it goes with our culture of our company of that we're not just a dispensing pharmacy; we're part of the education piece and the collaboration. So that was our ultimate goal. And then, like I said, Rachel, who's my marketing manager, she's the one that did the legwork to to help narrow down. We actually surveyed our providers and determined when they want it, how they want it, what topics they want. And then that's how we guided towards our selection of which speakers bureau, what formats, timing of time of day, day of week, all those pieces. So yeah, it's been very strategic and it's been a six month process for sure. I'm going to have to get her to talk to Erin Michael about the mm -hmm. marketing aspect and get her on a different event. So we oh, can yeah. hear more about sort of some of the strategies and yeah. not necessarily take the, take take away clients, but you know what I mean? Just help yeah. others build their help others. So, yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about inflammation. Cause I, I, man, oh man, like this is something that's been near and dear to my heart for long, long. That sounds terrible. It sounds like I have endocarditis. That's not the case. <laughs> um, when I'm talking about inflammation, I'm talking about the, the process or the dysfunctional inflammation. And you said that you're starting to see this more and more, especially with respect to post post COVID exposure and, and tools and, and different options. And this kind of leads in is like, 
where where we were sort of landing is we're we're repurposing old drugs that might be off label and that we're we're certainly not making any claims to efficacy. There's a lot of evidence out there. There's a lot of providers who are asking these questions. So sometimes we're responding to requests from providers and we're still having to do it within the legal landscape of compounding, right? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, that's exactly it is, is we're looking deeper into our toolbox of what tools already exist and what do we need to look at again and bring back up and put new light and new ideas and new testing and new variability to it. And I think this is where this one is leading because we were excited about this. Um, we've hosted a webinar just recently talking about some of the evidence and the research and you've picked this up and you've made it sort of like your own. Um, and so I, I like the color of the molecule, but what are we talking about today, Don? We get to talk about methylene blue. Yes. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> I, I, I started hearing more about this probably because of you. I want to say six months ago to about a year ago, you were yeah. starting to get requests on this. And so how did this evolve for you? Yeah. Well, to tell you the truth, my history with methylene blue goes back really, really early on in my career. Um, I worked with a patient. She's still a dear, dear friend and patient of mine these entire years that was using a old but tried and true good combo that was used for interstitial cystitis in which one of the ingredients was methylene blue. I actually pulled up this morning. I was like, what was that old thing she was using before? Um, it used to go by a brand name, Hyofem. Do you remember that one back in the day? I remember hearing about it. We yeah. Up in Canada, we didn't have that one. We had ah. a similar product, but keep similar going. Product. Yeah. I know exactly which one you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we were working with methylene blue decades plus ago in these combos for bladder inflammation, interstitial cystitis. And kind of the history of my work with methylene blue is we did this for a long, long time. And then all of a sudden we just couldn't get methylene blue anymore. And so we would continue. We tried making this particular combo without the blue, but everything else. And from patient experience, it just did not work as well as it did with the blue in it. But unfortunately, you know, this patient had to go a really long time, many, many years with no blue, no methylene blue. And it's only been as of more recently that we've been able to bring methylene blue back in. Thank you very much, PCCA. Very much appreciate that. And um, start working with it and start researching, well, why was this so important and what did it do in this product? And then how could that be applied to other conditions that maybe have similar um, presentation of inflammation? And so that, that kind of begs the question, because based upon the research, like we're, we're not saying that it will do this. What no. we're saying, here's the functionality. So what yeah. is the science behind methylene blue? How does it, how does it, how is it known to currently work? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. What we know so far is it has a direct effect on mitochondrial cellular health and the function of mitochondria. And as we all are become quite aware with the research that mitochondria is the energy producing the wheelhouse of a cell, right? And so if your mitochondrial not working up to snuff, that's when we start to have dysregulation of, of processes and immune function and more inflammation. Um, but interestingly, this is pretty fascinating to me. Methylene blue actually has some mechanistic action of working as a weak MAOI inhibitor. So working as neurotransmitter function, and but therefore also there is a potential for drug interaction. So we do have to be cautious and work with caution on that with other medications somebody might be on. 
But I think what fascinates me the most with methylene blue is the work being done to look at it as one of the most potent nootropic or antioxidant medications that's out there. Um, so that leads into, you know, brain support, cognitive enhancement. They're kind of, if you Google it, you, you start seeing things like the smart drug in which, you know, I'm not going to claim that by any means of anything, but it does play into, well, what does that mean it's doing at the brain cellular level? And I think that um, there's some really fascinating research being done, yet dosing is still being figured out and optimized for Alzheimer's and dementia and possible long-term effects that it may play in those particular medical conditions. And it's mainly that antioxidant effects sort of helping with all neuronal function, you get this neurodegenerative disease sort of thought process where people are saying, can we apply? Can we apply? And it, it again, it goes back to safety and titration and optimization of dose and further research. And we're still getting questions on it. We're still getting requests because people are, are looking for more information sooner than, hey, you know, we might have to wait a longer time for the study. So I think this is where the, the meshing of compounding fits in is we we have good safety information. We have good um, scientific information, and we just have to balance it out against how how do we provide the providers with with skills to make uh, appropriate clinical decisions. So, yeah, yeah, and I think I think it's important to highlight. I mean, this this is an old drug. We're talking 1876. It's on the World Health Organization's top list of most important drugs. And, you know, before we met today, of course, in my due diligence, I jumped on facts and comparisons and micrometics. And there is a lot of data available about this drug and how it functions within the body. Um, and yes, there are certain conditions. Well, there's one condition that has FDA approval, and there were several conditions listed in which it would be an off-labeled use of the medication. And, and in all honesty, that you know, we function in this world of off-labeled uses of medications probably 80% of the time with any prescriptions that are being prescribed by all types of doctors. So we're we you are right, it's moving fast. And I think we're gonna end up with lots of studies of N of one or case studies or smaller groups um, that are going to be leading the way on further information. On the note of it being such an old drug, um, what did it mean to you, Don, knowing that we had sourced a USP grade product through a very qualified vendor that meets our PCCA standard and that gave you the ability to trust also the source of the product? The, for this particular product in specific, I, this means everything. Um, this is a drug that one needs to be very thoughtful with when they are sourcing, preparing, dispensing, um, because it is a dye and it has been used historically in things like fish tanks and you know, it's a precursor to malaria drugs. And given that it's a dye, there is the propensity that it could be laden with heavy metals. And um, honest, that is nothing that I want any of my patients ever to be exposed to. So knowing that not only is it being sourced by an FDA approved and inspected facility, but then above and beyond that, that PCCA, you guys go through this very detailed extraordinary testing process that then validates everything that you're bringing in 
this means everything to me on especially this particular truck because I think there is a lot at risk and I think that if people are not careful with where they're sourcing it there is the potential to cause harm I think there's a lot of fear that I had as well when I first initially heard about methylene blue as you mentioned in passing I had seen it being discussed for a while but more recently which led me to believe is like well hold on a second it's being sold as an active pharmaceutical ingredient and obviously um, part of the triad, valid prescription and everything else. And then I'm like, hold on a second, I can find this on Amazon. Um, and that was where there was a fear that I had about the marketplace, that I saw companies on Amazon touting that it was 99% pure and it was USP grade. Um, and I'm like, how on earth is this even possible with an attached C of A? Uh, and then it wasn't USP grade. And I guess that was the moral of the story. But nevertheless, um, I think everyone who's listening to this podcast knows not to buy a drug on Amazon. I don't think that would make any sense, but watch out for definitely vendors who are potentially marketing to your patients where your patients might get a bit, I guess you can say slippery and say, you know what, why am I getting this through my doctor and through my pharmacy? I can just buy it on Amazon. It's probably much cheaper. Yeah, this is one that's taking a lot of education and it's actually taking a lot of education to the prescribers themselves as well, because they see the same thing. They're like, well, I can get an ounce of this and it says it's, you know, purified and it's only has water as the inactive ingredient. You know, this should be great. It's, you know, it's your, I really feel like this is one of those particular cases where you're, you're playing with fire if you don't really get the homework part done and validate what it is exactly is on that piece of paper or on that C of A that supposedly accompanies wherever it's coming in from. Yeah, thanks for clearing that up. Because I, I don't think it's common that people would look for a product on Amazon. But in the, in the case of a patient, I think it's, it's definitely possible knowing that things could be misrepresented, misbranded, and you're not entirely sure what you're taking. So... Um, obviously seeking a, a, a compounding pharmacy who's acquiring the product from a valid source in the proper grade uh, yeah. makes the world a difference in this case, specifically alluding to the heavy metal toxicity and other things that you mentioned. Yeah. And in all honesty, it took me over a year of searching to be able to find a supplier for it. And I, and in all honesty, the second that PCCA brought it in, done deal. Orders going in through there because you, you guys as a company, you do that extra homework piece for me. It's already going to go through that additional testing and that additional validation that then I feel really great about standing behind when I'm talking with my doctors and talking with my patients and providing care to them. So fast forward, um, and this will once again bring Seb back into the conversation. You mentioned the specialties that you focus on and obviously all the work that you do with low-dose naltrexone. What has the crossover been like in regards to the prescribers looking towards methylene blue and being open to it um, for the conditions that you previously discussed? Yeah, it's been really interesting in the Pacific Northwest as I've gotten out of the pharmacy and started talking with my prescribers. There's kind of two different camps. There's the the camp of providers where this was really new information, new ideas, and they're going as they probably should, given it is new to them, conservatively with lots of um, wanting lots of uh, additional information and knowledge to go with that. And then I have this other camp of doctors who are like, oh, methylene blue. Great. I'm glad you have it now, finally, because I've known about this for a long time. 
And so with that, those doctors that already knew about this and little did I know, um, were very anxious and ready to get going and super relieved to have that quality source. Um, they're learning just as we are too on what are the potential uses? Where do we think about this? When do we think about it? We're starting to see a little bit of crossover of use with LDN and methylene blue and that's seeming to be a possible additional tool. But we're also seeing it in patients where maybe they were that really rare percent that didn't have a positive LDN response, but yet we wanted to do something towards taking care of inflammatory pathways. And so that's that's in general where I'm seeing it right now with, with doctors and patients. And I, I think it is important to know that we do have a lot of people who are using uh, not only low-dose naltrexone, but they're also using other different avenues of treatment and methylene blue fits in there in a number of these sort of different uh, treatment clinical sort of practices. Like we're getting naturopaths picking up, we're having MDs pick it up, DOs pick it up, uh, nurse practitioners, because they all kind of have a different bend and a different use for it in their clinics. Not that we're saying which one it is, but yeah, it's, it's, it's almost, um, it's, it's an, that extra tool has value for, for a lot of their patients. And so, yeah, I, I, I kind of want to get into a little bit more of the meat. I think I read an article and I'm going to start with this one. Uh, they, they talked about methylene blue in COVID-19 and I'm going to jump in and they were talking about long hauler COVID. And this seems to be a big discussion. Could you talk a little bit about what you saw in that paper and, and what it kind of brings out in sort of potential or discussion? Yeah, I think you're referring to the article was um, like European Journal of Pharmacology or something like that early 2020, where um, this particular article that I'm thinking of anyway, they had patients with active COVID and they, in that group, they were looking at methylene blue, vitamin C and um, N-acetylcysteine together in combination. And the outcomes were quite profound and in that they were using um, the dosing range that seemed reasonable seems to be talked about a lot, seems to be referenced a lot with um, other conditions that methylene blue is used for, um, but they did oral or IV based on what the patient could tolerate, but they found in summary of that with active COVID, they actually found a reduction in fatality uh, with patients that were given that cocktail early on in their treatment. A lot of people have backed off of the uh, acute concerns about COVID infection, but Mm -hmm. the, I think the numbers are staggering when we're talking about long COVID. We're talking one in 10 women, one in 20 men, and one in 40 adolescents who have any uh, any indication that they were diagnosed with COVID are showing up with long COVID. And we're talking six months to a year of symptoms that they're following. So that's why I'm asking about the, the, the long COVID uh, paper that, that we saw. Yeah, the long COVID studies are showing similar results where patients are having less fatigue quite quickly, which means less brain fog and better function. That's in summary, what the literature I'm reading is pointing towards for, for post-COVID syndrome specifically. In regards to what both of you are referencing, just to dumb it down a bit, because I'm obviously not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Um, <laughs> Where are you acquiring a lot of your publications? Is it PubMed? Is it Google Scholar? Um, just so our audience knows where to pull the same publications. I use PubMed myself and did a quick search just this morning. And if just simply typing in methylene blue and um, 
COVID and I can't even remember how many studies came up, but it, it was quite a few were available through PubMed directly. So total tongue in cheek, I just go to Amazon and I just go, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, everyone laughs. You know what? <laughs> PubMed is a great research source. I also use Google Scholar and also sometimes uh, the nice part about being in a consultant role is we get fantastic practitioners like yourself, Don, who actually are like, hey, I heard about this article. Can you get this one? And sometimes we hear about this really quickly through clinicians because they're telling us, I read an article in this journal. And so it's not necessarily picked up and uh, visible on PubMed or Google Scholar just yet because sometimes there's a little bit of lag time. And so, yeah, this is why we're always constantly scouring PubMed and Google Scholar and these journal articles and, and almost that community has to be alive. And, and so sharing the information or where to find it um, but finding it is, it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's a network, but it's also going to your usual spots. Yeah. There you go, Mike. How does that answer your question? No, it does. And it was just, you know, bringing light to the fact that you guys are making references to publications. And uh, I also want our audience to feel that they have easy access to what you guys are referring to and where to find some information. And I think, cause that's going to lead into my next question is, is Don thinking about your representation and obviously why you're here today, you also represent PCCA's membership. And you're, you mentioned the fact that you have two compounding only locations. Uh, if you are to be speaking to one of your colleagues, your peers in another city, another state, who's thinking about starting to get involved more with methylene blue, where would you start and which doctors would you isolate and, you know, which type of patient would you bring to their attention? Yeah. And I think that the first place you start is that the pharmacist and the pharmacy needs to get themselves quite educated on methylene blue. And now there's, there's quite a few pretty simple summary um, resources out there. You guys did a great webinar a week or two ago. Um, there was a presentation at PCCA Concierge Congress. There's lots of literature on PubMed. And that's exactly where we started too. We did a dive into PubMed. I assigned it to one of my pharmacy interns. They pulled references, built this really great provider two-page white paper essentially on here's methylene blue, here's some thoughts and some feedback on it and some references to get you started and to start a conversation. And then really I started with the doctors I know best and just started, you know, hey, do you know about this? And that's where I was testing my waters of gosh, more people, more doctors know about this than I even knew already knew about it. And so um, those are fun conversations because you've learned pretty quickly that you've got to be able to address not only the provider who knows nothing about it, but also the provider that's been using something similar to this or a form of methylene blue for a long time. And then with that, you need to be able to talk very clearly on why quality matters and what you as a compounding pharmacy can bring to the table on that, whether it be, you know, dose accuracy, customization of dosing, purity of ingredient, ease of use, all of those really important things. And then it's being there as a clinical resource. And I love working with my doctors. They all have my email address. Many of them have my cell phone and being able to consult on those really chronic conditions that the normal's not working or we need to really work to customize. And I think that that as a compounding pharmacist is the biggest role that somebody could play. I don't know if I could have said that any better. It's like how I feel too. So thank you for expressing it so eloquently. Yeah, of course. You know what, Don, it, it, Thank you for taking the time for being here today. Um, 
what would what else would you share to our membership at this state? You know, and even in general, not necessarily to Methylene Blue. What message yeah. do you have to your colleagues and peers um, yeah. that are are dealing with similar prescribers, similar patients, and are actively looking at growing their compounding practice? Yeah, I really feel it comes down, we need to advocate. We need to advocate, we need to work together. Whether that advocacy means that you're advocating for that one patient that nobody else is helping, or if you're advocating at your state level to make sure that you have really good quality compounding that's occurring within your state, or if you're advocating it at the national level to make sure that we can continue to do this good work that we're doing every single day for patients, we have to get unified, we have to get louder, we have to get very professional and make sure that we're telling our stories and that we're telling our patients' stories and our providers' stories and that our voice is being heard. Um, we have a lot of threats out there and we have a, a lot of uh, people that are questioning what we do and how we do it. And I can say 100% that what I do in my pharmacy every single day is always in the very best of patient interest and my community interest. And I've always said that if I keep my community at heart, my business will follow. And I believe that's 100% true. But it's time for us to really get together and tell our story and not expect somebody else to tell it for us. I heard you were in Washington, D.C. last week. I was. Doing just that, correct? Yeah, I was. Yeah. And I love to get to Washington, D.C. to do that whenever I have that opportunity. But again, like I said, there's a lot that we can done can be done at state level as well. And, and we get this opportunity to be the voice for our patients that need us. If we're if we're not here, we have a lot of patients in our community that will suffer. And so it is our responsibility within our profession to do that work. I know I'm putting you on the spot. Did you have any really big meetings last week? I had really good meetings. And what I loved about my meetings is I've been, I have not been an advocate like this for very many years, but I am starting to see the, the benefit of that advocacy where I'm no longer this unknown lady walking in this office that they actually remember me and they remember our conversations. Um, and now I'm working on follow-up with that and really working to try to invite them to come into our facility to come see what we do. I was joking with, with one of our aides that we were talking with. He was mentioning, oh, yeah, I love to do site visits. We go to some construction sites and we wear the construction hats. And I said, you need to come to my pharmacy. I'm going to put you in personal protective equipment. and We're going to go do some things in the lab. And it'll be an experience you'll never forget. Yeah, that's absolutely amazing. And I think on behalf of the industry, thank you for being that advocate and for being so actively involved in Washington and meeting with lawmakers and to your point, staying in front of them so that they also remember who you are, what you represent and what you do. I think that's what you're really referring to is leaving that lasting impression and what customized medications means to your patient community. And thank you for everything that you put in. And on behalf of all that and on top of it all, you also are a great ambassador for PCCA and we just wanted to thank you and being part of this podcast is just part of it. I know you do so much else for us. Funny enough, if you walk around sometimes at our trade shows, you're also featured <laughs> like on one of our side walls. We got a, a whole Dawn portrait, um, oh which is awesome. And that doesn't go away. It's still there. Oh, wow. It's probably looking a little different than I look nowadays, but yeah, I'll never forget the first time that that was posted. It was a meeting I actually wasn't at and my phone was blowing up with this picture of me in a picture being texted. I'm like, what on earth is going on? But yeah. You never I'm, know when I'm you quite honored, you know, I'm, I'm happy to happy to help be that face and that voice. And PCCA does such great support work for compounding that I can't thank you guys enough as well. So thank you. Yeah. That's why I always be careful when you consent or release all your photos. <laughs> yes. 
can be used in marketing material. <laughs> no, yeah. but we appreciate it, Don. And thank you for taking the time today <clears throat> to be with the both of us to discuss your practice and all the amazing things that you're doing for your patients, specifically with Methylene Blue. You bet. Awesome. Well, you know, you mentioned something really important too, and I'll just let uh, those that are listening that are PCCA members, you mentioned that we did have a Methylene Blue webinar that is hosted yes. on our members only website. Um, it is, it can be found through the PCCA play portal. And that is a free webinar. Uh, Sarah Hover, our clinical services manager did an amazing job highlighting some of the stuff that you also discussed on and getting more specific relating to dosing. And that webinar is free for all. So for those that are interested in learning more that have access to PCCA play and through our members only website, I highly encourage you to listen to that webinar as a follow-up to this episode. And once again, just thanks to all of you out there listening. Don, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, we look forward to hopefully having you back one day. Absolutely. I'd love to come back. Thanks for having me. Awesome. And as always a reminder, if you want to follow us along on social media, whether that's LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button so that you do not miss an episode until next time. This is Mike Delisio, and thanks again for listening. <laughs>